This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod with, as always, Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm looking forward to an exciting weekend of setting up a farming robot. Really? A farming <laughs> robot? Okay. Uh, like, is, yeah, it's how basically does work? a 3D printing gantry okay, <laughs> um, yeah. that has, instead of a 3D printer on its head, uh, uh-huh. a little robot arm that uh, picks up seeds and kills weeds and waters. So That's sure really cool, it's, dude. It's, it's a direct result of 3D printing, so um, <laughs> no, I, 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 I like checked today. out these things. I, I checked out these things a while ago, and, and uh, I'm most excited about the idea of like just having like terraforming, so just like dropping a robot somewhere in the middle of nowhere and leaving it alone for ten years and like seeing a whole bunch of trees. It does. Yeah, uh, but 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 that wouldn't work in New York, would it? <laughs> no. But who do we have on the 3D pod today? Uh, well, today we've got Chris Tuck on the show, and Chris is, well, he's been an editor for, for like the longest time ever in, in academia, been doing a lot of other stuff besides, and uh, he started as a yeah, lecturer at Loughborough uh, a while ago and did a lot of like really exciting uh, AM work there. Uh, then he also started Added Scientific. Added Scientific is kind of like a, you know, it's kind of an additive manufacturing consultancy. If you would, let, let's say you need a binder jet machine. And you could go to them and they could design that machine for you. If you needed, like, you wanted to have a new technology that would work for a certain compound uh, that no one else is 3D printing, they could add a scientific and make that uh, for you. So that's cool. And then on top of that, he's now uh, uh, Associate Pro Vice Chancellor for Research and Knowledge Exchange We're from the univer- at the University of Nottingham uh, and at the Faculty of Engineering there. And he's also the uh, director and a co founder of Reactive Fusion. Reactive Fusion is a company that makes a technology that is. Let's say binder jetting, kind of like with multiple reagents, but then for polyurethane, kind of. Uh, so that's uh, very, very exciting. And I, I just think that, uh, yeah, Chris is always up to really exciting stuff and really, really uh, groundbreaking things. So it's great to have him on the show. Welcome to the show, Chris. Great to hear from you, Joris. And uh, Max, good to, good to speak to you. Uh, yeah, I've, I've been here in AM to, for, for too long, I think. But uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so we. So we is there started, such a thing as too long in additive no, manufacturing? Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe I don't know. But when you got started, like you got started, I, th- I think at Loughborough, right? That was the first time you got yeah, really yeah. going. So, yeah. So actually, I was um, uh, I was appointed as a postdoctoral researcher uh, for another um, long name in the in the field, a guy called um, Richard Haig, who I still yeah, work yeah. with today. And uh, is um, cool. We should have him too. We need him. Too. Yeah, he, he'd be glad to be on on, on your show. Um, yeah, so Richard and I have worked together since 2003 when he appointed me as a, as a postdoc on a, on a project when I was looking at supply chains and things like that, um, but kind of rapidly moved more into my comfort zone in terms of materials engineering uh, and that, that kind of aspect and, and grew, grew the group um, with, with colleagues uh, and moved to, moved to Nottingham in 2012. And then what kind of work have you done as a researcher? So- as, an, as an academic, I've worked across pretty much every platform you could think of. Um, I'm I'm really interested in how materials and processes interact, and, and actually, you know, we all know in additive manufacturing the reason why you you take the the 3D printing approach is because of all the design freedoms, the amazing stuff you can do, the fact you don't need molds. But quite often, the reason why you don't do additive manufacturing is because the materials don't perform like you want them to. 
Um, and so I'm really, you know, all of my research has been around that coupled material and process interaction and trying to make the best of materials that are available, but also make uh, new materials available, whether it's been an LPBF platform or in a material jetting system or in stereolithography, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter to me. I'm interested in the two things together. Yeah, I think, I think that's a really exciting approach because you see so many people right now, like a lot of additive research right now is like, let's characterize Inconel 718 for powder effusion, you know, or that kind of stuff. And and it's very close to, it's either powder effusion, for example, or very close to industry or very close to one kind of street or one kind of area. And you tend to kind of, like, first of all, you know, is that by design or are you just really curious to hop around with different platforms, different technologies? Yeah, I, I guess... Uh... Uh, my curiosity is my own worst enemy, I guess is the best way to put it. So <laughs> I, I'm just interested in the technology. I, you know, I, I didn't do my PhD in this area. I did it in um, fiber optic sensors, actually, um, back in the, the end of the 90s uh, and, and got interested in the technology through the postdoc I did with Richard. And I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm interested in lots and lots of different things. But what I'm really interested in is, is making solutions that work um, and that can be deployed uh, at some point in and have impact in society or in industry um and so i'm interested i'm interested in all different kinds of materials whether it's nanoparticles being printed or metal powders um but what i'm not necessarily interested in doing is doing something that i feel is incremental uh, in you know developing you know something that already exists and just making it 5% better and what i want to do is have the have the the fifty percent better, or the hundred percent better, or actually you couldn't do this before, and now you can. Does that mean you start with a certain application or a certain part you can't print, or a certain thing that's not possible? Or where do you start in order to make that material settings kind of culmination? It, it depends. Um, quite often, um, certainly in the past, it was uh, industrial contacts or um, you know links that would come and say, "How do we do this?" Uh, and so it was very application focused. But I guess towards my career as it stands now, it's more about, well, actually, wouldn't it be cool if this material was available? And that could then unleash a whole different set of um, uh, products in, in a different market, or it could, it could, you know, enable people to do something that they've been trying to do for a long time, but not really been successful, or they've only been, you know, able to do it with a, in a compromised way. And so, you know, you mentioned reactive fusion. Reactive fusion is based on the, the premise that whilst whilst you can extrude polyurethane um, filaments, what you can't really do is extrude um, is use polyurethane as it stands in the market today as a as a material. Um, and reactive fusion is a way of being able to produce that industrially relevant uh, material, hopefully at reasonable scale, uh, with a three D printing um, design freedoms that we all we all want. Which I think the really cool thing about this is polyurethane. I think it's a really exciting material, uh, PU, TPU, all this kind of that area. I'm huge on like like seats and and backings for things and highly comfortable, uh, you know, things like sports handles and stuff like that. Yeah. Polyurethane is is along with polyprop and, and is the one area we kind of end end uh, you know we end up most because it's soft and it's wear resistant and um and it's comfortable. Let's say if you will. But what I also love about it is it doesn't. Uh, reactive fusion doesn't use heat, right? So that's also with polyurethane. That's very, very dangerous as well if you start heating it up. And I don't think a lot of people realize how how, how dangerous that is for operators and, and people like that. Yeah, the, I mean, it's a it's an exothermic reaction, so you've got to control heat certainly. Um, 
and yeah, we don't use heat. We're not melting the material together. We're using, you know, a very simple binder jetting kind of idea that where we, we're jetting in the reactants into a powder that reacts with those reactants. So we do get the exotherm, um, but actually that's that's beneficial in our system because that actually just accelerates the, the reaction between the, the reagents and the powder. Um, and But it also means that we are able to control the distribution of properties to a certain extent because what we can do is we can jet in those different different types of reagents, still polyurethanes, so you can have your comfortable, uh, flexible um, part, but you can also have a rigid part. And that's what people don't necessarily know about polyurethane chemistries. Depending on the, the, the polymer backbone that you put in, you can have very rigid, high-performance polymers with very soft, high-performance polymers with high temperatures, with, uh, with um, chemical stability. Um, and binder jetting is, is great because it's you know, a scalable technology. It's relatively quick. It's relatively cheap in terms of the machine um, architecture. And that really lends itself to, you know, mass customized applications uh, further down the line. For the, when you're mixing the physical properties like that, yeah, you're doing it all in the same machine at the same time. You don't need to switch it out or stop the process and swap in. Yeah, absolutely. So, so if you imagine that, um, I mean, this is still in the development phase, but if you imagine you, you have a standard binder jet printer, maybe like a, a, an old Z-Core type machine. Uh, where you had the color, you know, the color inkjets. Well, if you imagine each of those colors, rather than being a color, each of them is a different um, right. chemical reagent. Property. And so your, pol- your, your powder stays the same, but the, the binding material that binds to the powder, not, not glues it together, it actually binds to the chemical spot sites on the outside of the powder. Then that gives you that additional uh, mechanical fle- uh, functionality that you wouldn't necessarily see in a, in a other process. And does that, are, are you seeing things like car seats and shoes or what, what do you think the really exciting thing is for, for that technology? So, um, so shoes, certainly we're very excited by the ability to, to be able to do, you know, soles, uh, and things like that, but also, um, we're thinking, um, actually things like teeth aligners as well. Um, uh, if we can produce, um, clear, uh, aligner technologies, um, that's difficult with a powder. Um, but we have um, a kind of variant on the reactive fusion where we don't use a powder. We just use the reagents to build up. We call it reactive jetting. Um, so that has the ability to have both soft and hard components. Um, it's slower in process because it's not um, you don't have that powder bulk. Um, so, so we're looking at that market. We're looking at any of the kind of sports uh, conformal grip type markets, but also a really interesting one, uh, which comes back to your farm comments earlier, Max. Um, in terms of robot gripper, um, uh, oh yeah, uh, yeah. So, so the, grippers, <laughs> uh, the grippers that go on the end of the robot arms, um, if you can grade those in terms of the, the flexibility, softness, tact- tactility, um, then you can start to pick different fruit. Um, you can you know arrange them and, and design them in different ways to uh, to make sure that they don't um, you know degrade the, the the fruit or the vegetables that they're picking. What's I'm curious because you brought up grippers and this is a whole <laughs> new fun area. What is the resolution that you guys are capable of doing? I mean, it's dependent on the machine, obviously, but I guess yeah. Is, so you still can't do like gecko grip on a no. on a printer. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> no. so if you cool, if you take the if you take the reactive fusion type method, so the powder binder jet process, then you're looking at something similar to um, something to a LPBF 
or a, a binder jet. So a couple of hundred microns as a feature size, probably. The material, reactive material jetting, um, you're probably in more of the material jetting range. So you're in the sort of 50 to 100 microns feature size. Um, so yeah, nowhere near a, a gecko uh, gecko yeah, foot, but still very cool. Not that you could do this. Yeah. yeah, we can't use the Van der Waals forces or whatever to. to, to I know yeah, it's so grip, cool though. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, um, maybe we can make the powder have some special kind of uh, functionality that that gives us what we need. But um, yeah, we're nowhere near that kind of resolution yet. Yeah, but bringing a new technology to market is really difficult because we've seen that either it's kind of like it's right for the time. Yeah, I think of powder bed fusion, which kind of like is, you throw a lot of geometries on it, kind of works well for everything. And it was right for the customers. You know, people want to start services, so this is a good system for them. Uh, or, you know, it's really right for one particular application. Think of like jewelry or hearing aids or something like that. Yeah. Uh, for that polarization or SLA more specifically, you know. It, you know, how do you do that? Are you just like, you know, just go shotgunning around, kind of trying to find lots and lots of different applications, talking to lots of customers? How do you bring that to product uh, to product to market? Because, you know, we've seen this go uh, completely wrong for a lot of technologies and then also take a very, very long time uh, for, for yeah. other technologies as well. Yeah, so um, it's tough. You know, in some respects, the strategy is dependent on your um, your resources. Um, so if you've got lots of resources, then you can do the scatter guns, you know, you can seed the market very, uh, successfully, um, by showcasing your technology. Um, you know, the UK market or the UK investment kind of, um, ecosystem is very different to the, to the way it is in the States. So it's much more organic, I, th I think is the best way to put it. Um, and so what we're looking, well, our, our um, strategy is to to prove the technology uh, and to take that proven technology uh, to people we know in the in the in the sector uh, and showcase basically the the properties that we can achieve that you know those those companies or those those individuals may be aware of uh, uh, applications that they can't fulfill at the moment and that our technology could. What we're trying to do is really influence. Um, the influencers to a certain extent, I guess, is the best way to put it. Yeah, because yeah, I think that, that's the one thing you need to have that, app, that that kind of application window, that area where, for that defined application, you get close enough that no one else is able to do it. And that's when all of a sudden people are like going to throw money at you, like in a lot of cases. Yeah. Um, so, or, so what we're trying to do is show that we're close enough in terms of, and and also different enough in terms of the mechanical and the physical properties of the parts that we're able to make. Um, to be able to then, you know, effectively segment part of the market or, or grow a completely new part of the market that doesn't exist at the moment. It's also interesting you mentioned the, the Z-Corp machines because these are the, <laughs> the, the Z-Corp machine, well, it was very problematic to run it in a service bureau environment. I can, I can say that in a very light way. Uh, uh, it, was, it was very difficult. Just a little um, experience uh, on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, it was really kind of annoying, but but um, and messy. But uh, but they, these guys have, are the workhorses of a lot of like three D printing inventions after the fact. The second hand Z Corp machines are really kind of uh, doing yeah. double duty and, and being platforms for a lot of uh, subsequent technologies. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and we. I mean, I guess what. I, so a lot of a lot of the research work that we've been doing over time at. Um, at Nottingham at the Centre for Additive Manufacturing. Actually, when we moved to Nottingham 10 years ago, we effectively decided to become an, a material jetting 
invest heavily in material jetting technologies. So we took a, a few years to learn about inkjet technology, moving um, um, and what different printheads could do, what different inks could, were possible, viscosities, all sort of the technical kind of background that you need to understand how that technology works and, and what you can do with it. And, you know, the scalability of ink, inkjet-based um, uh, machinery. Uh, and I think probably five or six years ago when we got comfortable with that kind of uh, technology area, which was new to us, we were, we were very much an LPBF, fat polymerization group uh, prior to that. Once we got comfortable with that, we could then see, well, actually, you know, what's, what's slowing material jetting down? Well, if we can put a powder in there, then we can increase the, the capacity even more. And we can still have elements of the work that we were doing in terms of research around multi-material printing. We can still have those elements in there. So that's kind of where we came from, is that when you understand the power of the inkjet print head, uh, and actually, you know, it's reliability, the, the, the standards that they're built to, um, once you understand that, you can actually start to do a lot more uh, and with a lot more scalability than you can with, you know, single point rastered uh, technologies. Um, and, and, you know, binder jetting is a natural evolution. And, uh, you know, you're seeing it even more now, you know, binder jetting is becoming much more prevalent in the market, whether it be for research or additive manufacturing parts uh, um, um, and um, applications. Binder jetting is having a bit of a, a renaissance, uh, I think, uh, at the moment. Oh, I totally would agree. I think, I think, but you know, it's also as a, from a research perspective, it's also really difficult because all these guys have different print, print heads. You can't just like do research on an Epson head and then go to a, like a, a HP one, and then it's not one-on-one transferable. They don't right. give you a lot of access. They don't even help you get a lot of access in some some countries companies' cases. So it's very difficult to get started with it. I know companies that have tried to kind of get started with just doing some ink jetting, like, you know, the classic, hey, I think everyone's come up with this idea once. You know, you do material extrusion for the part, dimensional stability, and then you inkjet on top of it, what Rise tried to do, right? I think everyone's trying to do that. You inkjet on top of it for, for full color or for coding stuff. Yeah. And a lot of that, like, flounders because they just don't have access to the software. The, these drop cams are really expensive. It's just really complicated to get started. We, again, 2012, when we moved to Nottingham, we invested heavily in a, in a range of inkjet systems. So we started off with um, Fuji, um, Dymatic systems. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then we moved, at the same time, actually, we moved very quickly to um, some systems uh, from a company called Pixtro LP50s. And they, they have been our workhorse machines for, for 10 years. And the, the beauty of them is that we can take different print heads, Piezo print heads, um, yeah. in this case, and we can run any of those PHO print heads on those machines. Um, and actually, that's yeah. translated into a lot of what happens at um, Added Scientific, because Added Scientific, um, the people there, they understand what print heads can do. They understand why you should select a different print head over another, given the type of material you want to process. Um, and we've recently started building our own print head boards, uh, driver boards that could be used on um, extrusion gantries, for example. Uh, or on in home uh, home binder jet systems, um, or you know modified binder jet systems. I guess is the best way to put it. Um, and and you know we're looking to develop those those products even further. So once once you understand what the inkjet systems can do, uh, like I said, you can then choose the right inkjet system um, for your application. There are you know a plethora of different inkjet heads around, um, and we have settled on two or three um but we're, we're never 
uh, we're never using one company's print heads to do the work that we're we're interested in. We have, you know, we have Konica Minolta, we have um, Zar, we have Fuji, we have all sorts of different print heads in our labs uh, and, and in our businesses, trying to make sure that we're using the right thing for the right uh, application. And okay. it, it's a lot of work. Yeah. And 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 okay, why why should I go for Binderjack? Because I, I mean, I think now we're seeing so much of the research okay we're we're at a stage where uh, especially in the states we're threatened to kind of like we're under threat of getting kind of swallowed up by the military defense industrial complex you know <laughs> everything is is powdered by fusion from metals and it's hypersonics high temp and and they, they have more money than anyone else or they're spending more money than anyone else you guys are doing something very very different you know you don't uh you know and i see that Binder jet is is well, binder jets. A lot of people are still metals, right? We can talk about that a little later. But yeah. I see that you know polymer or other materials binder jet could be really versatile, like in circuits, um, uh, you know, you know, full color, uh, multi material, uh, gradient parts. Like, you know, what do you think is the strongest case for binder jet? If I'm a researcher listening to this, I'm going to do LPBF, uh, you know, uh, super alloys like everyone else. Uh, <laughs> you know, why, why would I go for binder jet instead? So, bind, I think I think there's a there's a compromise. Um, so LPBF machinery is quite expensive. Um, you know, powders are quite expensive at the same time. LPBF, um, you know, is I guess the top end of of what you want to do. And if you're if you're working in certain areas, I mean, we work a lot in LPBF as well. We have you know in- incredible capability there. But the 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 binder jet systems enable you to do things at lower cost. They enable you to do things um, that are fitting different sectors, different different consumer groups. Um, they enable you to use lower cost, lower grade materials that maybe, you know, you don't necessarily need for the high, really, really high value applications that LPBF is is pushing. Um, I think if you th- if you take that down a notch again into material jetting, material jetting, multi-material, um, you know, we're we're working uh, with multi-material with colleagues in the healthcare sector electronics, sensing, all sorts of different um, different sectors, because what people want is the flexibility to design and build new products, whether that be a new, um, a new sensor with a different electronic configuration uh, embedded within a component for security reasons or for uh, packaging reasons, or whether it's a, a, a 3D printed pill that's got different pharmaceutical uh, uh, ingredients within it, and they have different dissolution um, methods, and so they give you the right amount of dosage at the right amount of time, and they're tailored to you. So, one of my colleagues, Ricky Wildman, has been working on that and has developed a complete lab um, in material jetting and vat polymerization as well to enable that to happen um, for uh, for healthcare and healthcare dose delivery. So, th- there's That's- a huge amount of options. Uh, that's super exciting as well. Just poly pills and poly pills, like this releases in six hours, just in four hours, just in a month, you know, especially, especially for like the customization to or... individuals as well. Like that's one of the hugest advantages of that since everyone's medical status is different. And yet we've spent forever like yeah, prescribing pills over, over, you know, to one specific group in the United States, the FDA generally tests on like white males and <laughs> nobody else. And then they're, they're like, why doesn't this pregnancy drug work? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? They're college so students. If pizza and Bud Light have like an uh, adverse effect or something, or Pabst Blue right. Ribbon, then, then it's going to mess up all medical research. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the, actually, you raise a really important point there, Max. It's, it, actually, the biggest 
whilst there's lots of reasons why you might do the um, the polypill type idea, one of the biggest reasons is compliance in that you don't mm. have this confusing set of, um, of of pills within you know one of those little pill boxes. Um, you know you could you could uh, have many of those uh, in a single pill, uh, and it increases compliance, increases the efficacy. Um, you can, as you say, you can design to individual level rather than to demographic. Um, so but even even bringing up that one core thing where you just at the beginning where you're saying like taking one of your you know the 26 pills as you get older, so to speak. Like my father, I know takes a bunch of pills. He has his morning pills and his afternoon pills and his evening yeah. pills. If yeah. you can combine all of your morning pills, your afternoon pills into just three pills, so to speak, or yeah. one pill with a time release system in it, woof. Like all the people that you would save as a result of just taking their medication properly. Yeah, and that's what, and that's exactly what Ricky's been working on for the past, yeah, well, quite a long time actually. But you know, that, and and we've got we've now got labs set up and to do that uh, directly, uh, and we've been working with some of the phar- pharmaceutical companies to do that. Um, Added Scientific's also been looking into that and into the scalability of that process because obviously you don't want to build one pa- one um, one pill an hour. You need to be building many many pills uh, um, a, a second, ideally. Yeah, it's it's a really important potential sector for additive manufacturing, even though people would never consider it. Why, why would you want to do that? It's not a complex part. It's just a, it's just a, a, you know, a cylinder that's been cut down. Actually, if you can engineer the, the, the cylinder to have that dosage platform, then it could be really exciting. And, and now they're working on kind of active materials that can respond to the body, can respond to uh, the microbiome, can start to embed themselves within the gut, intestinal tract, all sorts of different things to to com- completely you know change the market there. Yeah. I think event driven medication could be really exciting as well. Like if if X goes above a certain level, then we release stuff. That, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff could be super exciting. Yeah, but that would be very uh, exciting. <laughs> but also, uh, one reason I like like let's binder is like if we we're talking about let's say we try to make uh, a completely a, a device soft bits hard bits circuits batteries everything and we try to make like thousands of these devices it's you know it's either going to be a syringe based system or a single jet system or it's going to be binder jet really is like the most obvious inkjet kind of that area is the most obvious thing to do this multiple materials multiple functionalities kind of prints yeah and and you, again it, it comes again it comes from the power of the, the inkjet systems the fact that you can put multiple sets of those inkjet systems in a single process and coupled with that powder um, base that you're printing into um, gives you the scalability. So, you know, if you can get your ink and print head uh, robustness right, um, then, then you, you, know, you can do lots and lots of different things, whether it's um, porous batteries, um, whether it's um, filtration systems, whether it's... Uh, you know, the, the world is kind of open to you, assuming you can get those materials and process conditions right. And particularly in inkjet, that's, that's hard. Um, but it's, it gets easier the more you do it. Once you know how to formulate an ink, uh, once you know how to control the inkjet printing pattern, the, the definition of, you know, when you're printing your, your bitmap versus when you're, um, you know, how big your inkjet droplets are. It sounds simple, but actually... Coupling all those things together, the wicking effect of the powder uh, as well, that really starts to, you know, get very complex very quickly. And again, it's about that process and material interaction 
um, to make sure you get the right material out of the process that then forms the product that you wanted in, in the first place. I assume you run into all sorts of other kind of crazy headaches because you're talking about a very minor scale and we're talking about the size of a droplet, so to speak. Mm -hmm. or, or you, do you, have you encountered you know, issues on because of the tiny scale, so to speak, um, that you weren't expecting to show up when you were looking at it on a larger scale? Yeah. So, I mean, a, a really good one, which is, is commonly known in inkjet, but it's probably not as well known in um, additive manufacturing, is something called the coffee ring effect. Um, so if you're printing particulate inks, for example, um, those inks, as you drop, you drop your droplet and it sits like a nice dome on your substrate, um, it's normally a solvent-based ink. So you're waiting for the solvent to be evaporated and leave your nanoparticle behind. Um, and as you're, as you're waiting, what happens is you get a convection current set up in those uh, droplets called marangoni. And those marangoni convection currents effectively move all of the the nanoparticles to the outside, forming something that looks like a coffee ring. Uh, so if you want to be printing a, a conductive track, you don't want to be printing a conductive track that's got no conductive material in the middle of it. Right. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so you want to, you have to kind of manage, again, manage how you distribute those, those droplets, but also manage the solvents that you put in there, the heating regime that you might put those, um, those droplets in. Uh, you know how how quickly you evaporate, what you evaporate in terms of the solvents that are in there. It's um, yeah, it's a very complex system. And again, once you understand it exists, you can you can manage it to a certain extent. But um, you don't when you go into inkjet, you don't think, oh, all my really expensive nanomaterials are just going to move to the outside of that droplet and uh, and ruin my print. Well, what do you think? Is, what are some more exciting ideas in binder jet? Because uh, I'm glad you're talking about all the stuff that doesn't get talked about that much. Because when people talk about binder, it's either like the full color kind or it's like metal. So, so there's so much other stuff. So, first of all, like I think the most exciting stuff is always electronics, and that's like, you know, and that's one of these things where it's always like five years away. Yeah, <laughs> and, and we we just get five years older, and then it's always five years away. Um, so so how you know? But I am hearing some exciting things that electronics is getting more likely and there are some uses and some people actually doing stuff in the field. So, you know, how likely is this electronics thing? What do you think is the, the frontier is there? I think, um, I think in material jetting, the electronics angle is, is much more mature than maybe we think. I think the 2D printed electronics world has really set a, a good benchmark for new materials that we can use in 3D printing. Actually, they run to much higher tolerances than we would need to run in 3D printing as well. So much smaller droplets than we would want because of um, you know, speed of production uh, reasons. Um, but the biggest barrier is the fact that they still, in the main, use silver inks uh, for conductive tracks rather than copper. Um, well, copper is, is still an issue in terms of oxidation and um, uh, the way that you have to process it. But it's you know it's it's a much it's a much more mature market than um, than it is in the three D printing world at the moment. So I think that's going I think that's going pretty well. I think in terms of binder jetting, what the interesting um, potential is again, if you think about these these nanoparticulate loaded inks, if you can start to print those with your structural inks in a binder jetting uh, context, then your your powder becomes basically a substrate. If your powder is a substrate that's coated in um, 
these nanoparticulate metals or 2D materials, graphenes, indium selenides, whatever it might be, then you can start to do some interesting things from maybe um, a solar cell perspective or from a battery mm-hmm. perspective because your surface area is is massive in comparison to what it would be in a, in many other techniques. So mm-hmm. I think if you can start to couple the material um, deposition the surface area potential with with binder jetting because of the powder that you have and potentially use that powder to um, absorb energy or uh, react with some of the the media that's flowing through it then you can start to do kind of exciting things yeah i think think the surface area thing is really really great because i love this also for like kind of heat sink or heat sink ish kind of coatings or heat exchange kind of coatings and just like functionalized surfaces on top of things, I think we forget that that's also a huge thing. And and I love the idea of just being able to 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 add a lot more functionality. Like, okay, the, the idea of like you know making batteries with three D printing, if, if, but for real this time, uh, I think would be would, would be a huge breakthrough. And that's also where people are spending tons of money right now. So that's also a really good. Uh, that's also a huge potential for the industry as well. Yeah, but to, to also integrate batteries into like a car frame, for example, would be a, you know, so it's not as cumbersome to deal with that. Like, is yeah, that, I think, I, I think yeah. if you can start to, again, you can if you can use the design freedoms that you are going to get anyway. You know, the, your car frame is probably going to be manufactured in a traditional traditional way, although it may be right. a composite composite frame now. Um, but you know, it's probably going to be made in a traditional way. If you can make your battery conformal to that. You can integrate it better. You can distribute it better. You can distribute the weight. You can distribute the charge, um, the heat. You can do all sorts of different things. Once when you can do that, that three D conformal structure uh, and tailor it to the um, to the um, to the chassis or whatever it might be. But I'm a little bit more excited. I like that, but also the higher energy density generally is, is kind of yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's <laughs> the actual desired thing that we all want. Yes, <laughs> you know the materials are moving on for batteries. It's not you know it's not lithium anymore. It's it's sodium. It's it's air based batteries. So how how binder jetting works in those areas is going to be really exciting. Yeah, just in time I for think... the United States to open a lithium mine. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, the worst thing ever to happen to warlords. Um, I, okay, now uh, like, I think we need to talk about metal binder jetting because that is where a lot of the excitement is around. A lot of people are saying that is like you know the gateway technology of making two dollar parts instead of three hundred dollar parts. But we all know that well, if, we, if we try to use the technology, we all know that it is a little bit more problematic. That it's a little bit more you know you have problems with the models in green states falling apart. You've got problems with certain geometries. So what's your view on metal binder jetting? And because and that, that you were talking about hype before, you know, 90% of the hype is around, you know, metal binder jet, right? Yeah. So, so I think, um, I think what you say there around um, the process is actually not just the binder jetting machine. Um, the fact that you have to go through, um, uh, you know, a, a powder selection process, you have to make sure your powder is appropriate. You have to then print the appropriate binders into it. Um, have we done enough research on uh, the right kind of bind- binders? Can we add functionality by changing the binders potentially? Um, but then when you start to think about, you know, that I guess most people consider it the post-process, but actually in binder jetting, it is part of the process. The fact that you have to take that green part out, you have to do, um, you have to uh, infiltrate that with a, with another material or sinter it t- to a considerable uh, considerable 
um, margin and, and the, the, the effect of shrinkage there. There's a huge amount of control that needs to go on um, after you've actually printed your component. And that actually probably takes you down to, okay, it might be relatively cheap, but it's very labor intensive. Um, and act, actually, is it any different to the way that we are you know, casting components? Yes, it is in terms of the infrastructure you need uh, and the cost of the infrastructure you need to, to be able to make those components. But in terms of length of time, in terms of cost, maybe, maybe not. Yeah, I but thought, there I are material it, properties that we can get out of it that we wouldn't be able to get out of traditional sintering methods, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, if, you know, especially if you're yeah. clever with your choice of binder, um, um, if you can get, uh, you, you know, you can mix your powders up, you can do all sorts of different things, yeah. Yeah, so it's 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 good that you point that out because a lot of people seem excited by the prospect of inventing a new machine, mm-hmm. and especially with the multi-step process as complicated as binary. Like, a, you know, I think I solved a lot of it by the way by just saying that we should wrap the models in dough at one point <laughs> as as they come out of the machine, put them in dough, and then you know keep them safe until they're sintered. Uh, you know, but this kind of like it's stupid, but it's also wonderful in the sense that. It's an idea such as that that would really make Binerjet a lot more successful and increase yields successfully uh, and make it a lot cheaper. You know? So I, li- I like the idea that you, you have a lot of focus on that uh, kind of like that recipe stuff. Everybody wants to invent like what is the next after the pizza, but you're trying to figure out like, no, no, how do we make a better pizza? Like actually, let's, let's actually make this work, you know? Yeah, I, it's, it's interesting. You, you, can, you can focus on the machine uh, and, and make small incremental changes to the machine. Or you can actually say, what is this machine actually able to do uh, if we've got the right materials going into it? And, and again, it comes back to that, that material and process relationship that actually we make the materials in, our, in, in this industry. You know, additive manufacturing, we make the material in the machine. We, we don't take TIE 6.4 and put it into our, our machine, uh, TIE 6.4 powder, put it in our LPVF system and get exactly the same TIE 6.4 out at the end. You know, we know that, and there's lots of research been, lots of research money been put into that that kind of area, and it's the same with it with binder jetting. We're at the, I guess, we're at the start of people exploring binder jetting because it's become relatively affordable, reasonably recently. Um, people are able to then explore the envelope, and it will take a few people to say, well, actually, no, this is what I want to try and achieve. Maybe because I've got an application, or maybe just because I think it's cool. You know, it, it's it's about really understanding what you can achieve if you can put these materials and processes together. So rather than the two plus two equals four, the two plus two equals five or six or seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that because also uh, this whole idea like uh, you're, you're making a material. So every shoe, your left shoe and your left right shoe, could be a unique material just for you. Yeah, right. For no other person in the world could have that material. Like it's like having your own alloy or having your own. This goes even more further at the voxel level. We could control in the future at one point, hopefully, uh, we can control you know that one particular material to such a way to give your left shoe, your right shoe, and your winter shoe, your running shoe, a completely new material. And and then then that links into design. Is like how do we know which material is the right material to put in which voxel? You know, and that's a whole whole. Yeah. New realm of uh, research that needs to be done. How, how do you make these sneakers that make me jump higher? That's all I really care about. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but, okay, but, and you're laughing, but the, the one of the things that no, 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 but that's really, yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. It's like yeah, <laughs> no, but also at the same time, like one of the things that really Chris's uh, uh, point just now is really good because one of the things that like uh, when first is polyjet was first kind of coming out with these kind of gradient 
parts. One of the problems was you had to make an SDL, a separate SDL for every single kind of area you wanted to give a different density or different hardness, softness or whatever. And it was just a nightmare. It was just a nightmare. And, and I think also like a lot of the times when you get the software guys doing their own little cool thing and, 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 and the hardware guys are doing something and there's no real integration. You know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and um, you know, we, we don't have that problem with printing out a document in color. Um, you know, the, the, there's the software recognizes what's what color um what's what or what's what functionality um and we're able to just say press print um we're not there quite yet with um with multi-material printing um you know many of our systems that we've developed over time you know have different recipe generators for different types of inks because they react differently under the process you know if you're printing a um let's say a silver conductive ink that that might dry to something that's 800 nanometers high if you're printing next to it a polymer uh, droplet that's um, going to form your structural component that might be 10 microns high as a single droplet when it's cured so you have to print 10 droplets of, right. of the silver for every one droplet of the of the um of the polymer so there's all of those considerations understanding how the materials react and how they interact with each other there's a huge amount of understanding that needs to go on um before before we see you know lots of these machines in industry but the fact is we can do it you know physically we can make stuff we can probably make stuff that people can't design uh, at the moment uh, yeah. and that's really exciting because then the designers will come up with new ideas and they'll find the value in in those components Totally. I think I just got an idea. Actually, it's kind of really funny because, like, I remember that years ago there was these guys trying to make these kind of automated testing rigs for testing medicines, and that's also what they're kind of doing with these organoids and lab on a chip. You know, yeah. the idea is just to throw a bunch of compounds out and see what happens. Like, it would be so cool if we could do this. If we could just literally randomly pr print out stuff and test it, and randomly just make models, and then just let machines run indefinitely until we find out, like, well, actually, this is a great material for golf club heads or for filters you know yeah yeah randomly generate different shapes until we get a shape that's like oh well, i guess that's what this is for <laughs> yeah so we, we kind of done that to a certain extent with um uh, again a couple of colleagues Rick, ricky wildman who i mentioned earlier but a guy called morgan alexander who's in our pharmacy uh, school at nottingham he um they have a high throughput way of generating new materials and these were new materials for, for um, antimicrobial attachment so basically they don't let bacteria attach to the uh, to the polymer uh, they don't kill them they just don't let them attach and they went through a high throughput um, method to to identify materials that then we could print and so that now forms that method forms part of the way that we try and select new polymers for for material jetting that's amazing that is super amazing uh, wait one thing is, is really interesting it's completely aside by the way right but i remember i i came around i think it was like 2009 or 10 or 11 i don't know when uh, I went to Loughborough and I arrived at the station yeah. after taking a, a plane, uh, after taking a plane, uh, a train trip that's more expensive than my flight, um, uh, and then, and then I arrived at the station and it looked like I was like, if I die here, like Agatha Christie is going to solve my my murder or something. It was like really weird, right? It's quite an old station. Yeah, <laughs> it's quaint. And it's in the middle of nowhere. It's like really weird. And then I got this university. And I think at the time, I think that Rupert Soar guy was there doing 3D print yeah. architecture, which was like, and no one was doing this, right? It was him and Enrico Dini, I think. Maybe there's a third person I forgot, but maybe the contour crafting guy as yeah, well. Uh, yeah, but it was literally the three of them. 
the Koshnevis guy, uh, Dini, and then the Sor guy. There was powder bed fusion. There was metal powder bed fusion. There was like tons of stuff going on. And I was just blown away because there was this one university that it was doing everything. And then now we're seeing that, well, actually, I think, I think all these other universities gutted the, the love for our research departments, right? Uh, uh, and, and especially in the UK, you've got universities like you know, Sheffield, Nottingham that are you know, on the world stage, reasonably big and well-known, but you're not like multi-billion dollar endowment Harvard kind of stuff, you know? So nowadays, do we have to specialize or could, we, could another university aspire to be kind of like Loughborough was back in the day in that 2009 period where they're doing everything? Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, Loughborough was doing everything at that point. Um, I think yeah, it was insane. It was like, it was like, I was just walking around there and I was just like, what? And yeah. I remember the sword guy was even most of it was amazing. He was doing like ant kind of structures or something. Yeah, termite, termite mounts. Yeah, yeah termite mounts. So I was like, what? And then, and he was then, just printing uh, termite mounts like to explore their yeah, structural yeah. properties. Mm, okay. Yeah. So he was doing something called, um, he was doing a project based on, I think it was called homeostasis. So basically, it was a self regulated architecture so temperature regulation and termite mounds were a great way of um modeling they, they, they are homeostatic so um right. yeah so so rupert's still doing that at um, nottingham trent university i think yeah exactly but i mean I, just this one place was just so amazing and and could that happen again or i think it i think to a certain extent it still happens so um it kind of happens here at nottingham so we do like i said we've got all the technologies we don't do a huge amount in construction anymore, but there, there is interest in that in, in other parts of the university. I think, I think what you say about, you know, ourselves in Sheffield um, being on where, you know, people in the industry know, know that if you want to do additive manufacturing, particularly if you're in the UK, those are two places that uh, are good to, good, good to go to. I think what you had in the late 2000s was um, probably, probably quite unique in that there was the research funding didn't really know what additive manufacturing was still at that point. Uh, and so you were allowed to do sort of crazier things and, and you could consolidate that around, you know, a core set of people, um, Richard Rupert and, and Neil Hopkinson and Phil Dickens at the time, particularly, you know, they, they, they really wanted to do, they really wanted to take the additive manufacturing um, area to the next level. Um, and I think it has become that partly because of what they did. Um, but, um, you know, as, as you get more into the technology, you need that specialism to a certain extent to really understand what's going on. And if you, because if you don't understand what's going on, it's never really going to, to give you the, the performance that you want in either the parts or the process or the materials or whatever it might be. To have such a broad range of activity in one place, I don't think without significant investment would happen because of the teams that you need around it. Yeah. yeah. I think, but it could be like, if you're looking at this from a strategic point of view from the Britain, especially Britain now in a post-Brexit Britain, I think, uh, you know, it would be, you know, it's, it's like, you know, what it costs, like a couple of million or something. And it wouldn't be that cost prohibitive given the impact, I think. But it's easy for us to say, obviously, but I think yeah. at the same time, uh, um, but I think, I think compared to a lot of other stuff, you know, maybe photonics and bioprinting, Mm-hmm. And nano could have similar type of effect. With a lot of people, that a lot, a lot of areas where, for so little money, you could uh, play such an outside ro- size role, right? Yeah, I, th- I think the UK has been. I think U- UK as a as an additive manufacturing community um, has been right at the forefront for a long time, um, and there is an opportunity, still an opportunity for us to really capitalise on that. 
Um, we we just work in a different ecosystem to the way that you would work in the states, for example. You know, it's it's a very different funding landscape. It's a very different corporate landscape, and it's a very different um, a very different landscape in terms of investment and and company development. So we've done a, a recent piece of work um, with Sheffield around that, just looking at what could happen if the UK invested in additive manufacturing and and you know and some of the technologies that are coming out of you know Sheffield Birmingham ourselves um Imperial College you know there's there's a huge amount on offer um and at some point somebody will somebody will realize that and that might not be to the UK's benefit but um hopefully it will be yeah other other countries could uh, be, be faster i think um and then and another thing i think well first of all we didn't really talk a lot about additive scientific so could you give us a little example of oh, what yeah, the kind please. of stuff you guys <laughs> you guys did yeah yeah sure um so additive scientific um we set up in 2015 um it's you you described it well it's it's kind of a additive manufacturing consultancy but it's not just a, a desk-based consultancy it's very much a, um, a a technical service driven company so we actually do physical projects um, we provide, you know, we, we take statements of work from our clients. We work on, on particular problems. We might develop a machine or method of deposition. Uh, and over time, since 2015, we've, we've very much concentrated down the inkjet type market. Uh, so material jetting and binder jetting. Um, and recently, um, we've put up a few LinkedIn posts recently on um, some new um, inkjet boards um, driver boards and print heads that we think are very useful for people in the in in the research area particularly that you can use as relatively low cost uh, a bit ways of depositing material uh, using inkjet that are open you don't have to mess with waveforms the the software is relatively simple um based on a czar 128 um uh, inkjet platform um and that you can heat as well um, so yeah, so we, we've been very much a technical services uh, company, and and still are. We do a lot of work with blue chip uh, companies in the inkjet space and 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 other technologies, um, but uh, are moving more towards product with um, with our boards and heads, and then hopefully into material jetting and binder jetting later. Okay, that's super cool, man. I, so Chris, thank you so much uh, for your time. I think it was really really exciting to find out what you're up to. Thank you very much for the invite. Um, it's been brilliant. Great to talk to you, um, you and Max. Right. And, and thanks a lot for being here as well, Max. No, always fascinating pleasure. Thank you, George. And thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.